0: Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Michael Fritz, director of the section of facial plastic and microvascular surgery at Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Fritz was previously a guest on this podcast to discuss salvage operations for post-treatment complications. He's here today to talk to us about interlateral thigh lata rescue flap for osteoradionecrosis. So welcome, Michael. Thank you. Happy to be here. So uh, remind us uh, about your role here at Cleveland Clinic.
1: So I am primarily a clinician, a surgeon here. I'm the head of uh, facial plastics. We have a section of uh, four people, um, which is uh, part of the broader uh, Head Neck Institute effort. My main role uh, at the clinic is in uh, complex facial reconstruction, and most of that involves uh, free flaps or microvascular free tissue transfer, where we transplant other parts of the body uh, to fix faces and necks and heads and whatnot. I also do cosmetics once a week just to kind of balance everything out.
0: All right. So today we're going to talk about this interolateral thigh fascia ladder rescue flap. And this is for uh, for a condition osteoradionecrosis. And we have a, a fairly broad group that might be listening in. So let's start basic. What is osteoradionecrosis?
1: So osteoradonecrosis often termed ORN, because it's a big word, uh, is basically death of bone related to radiation therapy. The actual mechanism is still debated, um, but it's essentially the bone gets treated very hard with radiation, like the cancer gets treated, and it's never the same. And sometimes it can't recover from a minor infection or an injury. And then it sets off this cascade of bone exposure, infection, and then bone destruction. And that obviously causes big problems. The big kick in the pants for folks is it usually happens when their cancer is cured, uh, you know, and they're 10 years out and uh, they just have a, for instance, a bad tooth and they need to get that treated. But that, that tooth exists in an area of poor healing substrate. And so you can't just pull the tooth. The the dentists uh, know to do everything they can not to take it out because if you expose that bone, you open Pandora's box. And, and that's kind of how often uh, ORN starts
0: what are the uh, current treatments? Uh, what, what's the most common way this is treated right now?
1: You know it, it varies around the country and you know when there's not when there hasn't been an ideal treatment in the past, then you get a lot of opinions uh, because nothing is is definite. The two most popular treatments uh, that exist are hyperbaric oxygen, which usually involves about thirty trips to um, the dive chamber where you've got pressurized air high concentration of oxygen you're breathing and the theory behind that is you're you're increasing the delivery of oxygen and nutrients to the tissue by increasing that amount that's dissolved in in your bloodstream through the atmospheric pressure it's a good theory and it does help with some wound healing issues uh, for sure it has value but with orN the randomized controlled studies the really good studies have never shown that it's super effective but yet uh, around the country in most places this remains Kind of the first standard of care, so it's thirty days, a lot of time out of people's lives, and and often uh, significant copay, at least in the state of Ohio, for a lot of our patients.
0: I suspected you were going to say it didn't work that well when you said it's a good theory,
1: right? And and then the other the other option is uh, is medical management, pentoxifylline, uh, vitamin E, um, colinidronate, which is a bisphosphonate a medication. Those have all been looked at, and and there is some. Reported efficacy uh, with those are probably a little bit more convincing than with hyperbaric oxygen, uh, which, interestingly, hyperbaric oxygen is still more popular. But what they've shown in, in the in the quality studies is if you have very minor disease, you have about a fifty percent rate of control. And then the question is, as well, you have control; it heals over. But then what happens five years later down the road? And and nobody really knows the answer to that because those studies have never been done. So between those two. You don't really have an awesome solution.
0: And so interestingly, bisphosphonates can be a, a therapy in this situation, even though they can cause osteonecrosis.
1: And, and some of the studies have shown that, you know, because that doesn't make sense to people who see the damage in bone from bisphosphonates sometimes. But the theory behind it is there's, a, there's an imbalance that somehow is created uh, by the effects of radiation therapy and then that that strikes the balance better in terms of osteoclasts and osteoblasts, the, the, the cells that are destroying and, and, and putting down bone. But when they've looked at those two medical managements together, they've shown that the, the medical management without the bisphosphonates it's better. Uh, again, it's all kind of uh, a little bit nebulous data. There's, there's no perfect study that's been done. So everyone's kind of got their own witch's brew that they give folks. But at least uh, from my standpoint, where they come to me with continued problems, None of those seem to be super effective.
0: So tell me uh, about the surgical options.
1: So uh, not so long ago, um, this is kind of when I was a resident in early staff, we we only had one surgical option. Uh, and you know, so we, we told the patients, yes, go through the, the debridement, the cleaning up of the bone, go through hyperbaric oxygen or whatever medical management. And if the, the problem continues to smolder, which is actually most of the folks that get to us already have gone through that stuff and the problem has continued to smolder. We've kind of given them the the talk uh, about uh, having a roof that leaks, but it, to fix it, it's a tear off. And so it's a very big operation uh, to fix it. So traditionally, what we did was take a segment out of the jaw or the maxilla or, or whatever bone was the problem, cut it down all the way through to good bone. And then we take a bone from somewhere else in the body, like the fibula most commonly with the blood supply and we put it in there. Now that works really well but it's a very big operation usually people are in the hospital for about 7 to 10 days they often have a trach they always have a feeding tube and you can imagine I mean a fibula is a good spare part I mean you do recover very well from taking it out because it's not a weight bearing bone but you're talking in the order of you know 6 6 weeks to a few months before you're walking comfortably so it's that's a high cost item and so basically we told people you know let's just watch this and and when it breaks and when it gets bad enough then we'll do something about it that always seemed to be a very imperfect solution in my mind. And so kind of at the influence of, of one of our former oral surgeons who was very bright, our first patient, uh, we did this rescue operation on that we're going to talk about. It. And and he was a very good candidate because he was in hyperbaric oxygen and he had retinal detachment in the chamber. And that's a, an absolute con- contraindication to going back in the chamber, you can go blind. So he had pretty good looking jawbone uh, for the inferior kind of two thirds of his jaw, um, but the upper part with Two of his big molar teeth in it was clearly very, very dead. And she said, look, I need to pull these teeth. It's going to leave a hole. And, you know, the traditional management would be to do this fibula free flap and a a resection. But look at all this good bone. Isn't there any way we can put something on this bone to stop the process? And she had had some experience with like big kind of way more antiquated flaps that they were doing at other uh, institutions. But um, we had been getting very good with these tiny little perforator flaps from the thigh And I was like, well, why don't we put a perforator flap on that, give it a whole new blood supply, cover it up. It won't have any bulk. So the patient certainly won't have any discomfort or swelling from it. Um, And let's see how that goes. And, uh, you know, with the patient's permission, we went ahead and did that. And he left post-op day one, less than 23 hours after his operation, which was four hours long. And now he's 14 years out um, and has never had another problem. Uh, Actually, I saw him not too long ago. and He said he never looked back from that operation. So that was the first one, and it seemed to be very, uh, very compelling. And so, you know, here and there we found candidates for this, and we, we've done it through the years. But it was very, very slow uh, to kind of take, uh, as as you know as well as I do. Uh, doctors are probably the slowest people to accept uh, change and innovation. So uh, it was hard to get people in that weren't so far along that their bone was all the way broken through. This operation doesn't fix that. You have to have enough healthy bone so that when you stop the process, it's going to stay stable. It's going to give them them jaw stability. So now we do one or two of these a week. Um, It's become a very popular operation. We've published on it a couple of times. And our experience is in in the candidates that are good, the candidates that have enough healthy bone that we can maintain the stability after we clean up all the bad stuff, 95% of them have not gone on to need that bigger operation with the fibula. And the difference is, for our operation, people typically stay one to two days. We let them start drinking right away keep them on soft food for a while because we don't want to traumatize that reconstruction and the other reason why we thought this was a really good idea is the anterior lateral thigh flap which is where we take this tissue from the the upper thigh the lateral aspect it's almost free spare parts people walk the next day anybody who's had a skin graft says that this operation hurts way way less than a simple skin graft and it, it just it doesn't weaken the muscle it doesn't change anything it's it's a It's a non-named vessel. It's the descending branch of the lateral circumflex femoral artery. And I tell my residents when it's that long of a name, it's not like your radial artery. It's not a critical (laughs) vessel. It's spare parts. So, you know, this is a very effective operation, but it's also so low cost to the patients. You know, simply if you told them you're going to take 30 days out of your life and go in a chamber, even if it was equally as effective, or we can do a four-hour operation, you go home the next day and then go on with your life. Many of them just choose that, just out of that, uh, regardless of the fact that one of them is 95% effective and the other one doesn't have statistically significant improvement. We think it's the answer.
0: Has there been any difficulty getting sort of an awareness of the procedure in terms of getting people to you, I guess? Um, It it sounds like it would be an easy sell if somebody's in front of you and you describe it as you just have. But in a situation where surgery was usually – kind of a last option and you say well i'll do something if i absolutely have to to now saying hey if you got a good bone come in and i'll do this has there been difficulty getting people to sort of get a consideration to get people to you early enough
1: uh yeah i think there's there's two roadblocks in this uh one we mentioned on um, we mentioned before that doctors are slow to accept change so we're still essentially the only facility uh doing this operation um a couple of the folks I trained uh, around the country are starting uh, to embrace it and and kind of believe in it and, and are performing it, but not on a regular basis. So it's a it's an education uh, issue uh, among you know, oral surgeons, radiation oncologists, uh, reconstructive surgeons that this is truly a, a really effective low morbidity procedure. Uh, the other is is I think every patient that's been through all of the pain and Tribulations of cancer, and you know the operation, chemotherapy, the radiation. I think in their mind, anything they can do that keeps them out of the hospital and keeps them out of surgery is probably a good option uh, before they consider that. It's definitely a barrier to to jump over to say, okay, I'm going to go ahead and go ahead and have another operation, because it's just it's it's scary for them to go back in again. You know, and I think a lot of them are worried that uh, there might be cancer there you know, again, or, or something like that. So they'd much rather go down the route of anything that doesn't involve being the hospital medical management or hyperbaric or whatnot.
0: Are there things that are being done sort of on the front end during the procedures themselves that are minimizing the risk for this developing or, you know, different radiation techniques, you know, hypofractionation, things like that, that, that are going to decrease the, the likelihood that people get this in the first place?
1: I think certainly with uh, with our modern radiation techniques, the incidence of osteoradionecrosis has gone down, and and the amount of peripheral damage to the tissues around that bone have gone down. Uh, But we're still seeing it regularly. It's still it's it's still a relatively uh, common problem. But the the degree and the extent of uh, or and that we saw, say, 20 years ago when I was a, a resident starting practice, you you don't see. A jaw that's just destroyed along its entire length, uh, which again, it it actually lends itself more to this operation than the needing replacement, because um, it's just not the the damage isn't quite as global. There are still some centers that are are quite aggressive, even with oral cavity cancers, where they're doing chemotherapy and radiation up you know as a primary um, mode of treatment, and so you know their incidence of ORN is is up along the lines of you know twenty percent still. So that's really high. I I'd say in general ours is probably. Three to five percent, but that's still a meaningful number.
0: So you've had successes. Um, What's the next uh, the next step? Anything in the works to to improve the process?
1: Uh, You know, it's uh, there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered. I I think really right now is um, getting the the education, the word out. Um, Most of the patients that see me, a lot of them see me from around the country. It's it's more of a word of mouth based on patient stories uh, that are published on the internet, and and they're they're googling, they're finding, hey, there's an alternative uh, to to the the big operation, or waiting until I have the big operation. So I think gaining more acceptance, and and I think that's going to come through more publications, uh, stronger you know pure uh, data, because some of the stuff we publish on has, you know, this this is applicable to uh, necrosis everywhere. It's not just in the mandible. So some of our our, our data includes uh, skull-based patients, which actually those are even harder to manage because we do those with just endoscopes through the nose. And to reconstruct that area, it used to be getting there was worse than the reconstruction itself because you'd have to go through the neck, through the jaw to get to the back of the skull. Now we can even do that just endoscopically. So, But we we mix those in uh, with our maxillary ones and our, our mandibular ones. So we, we are now in the process of writing a pure... Mandibular study, you know, with more robust uh, controls and data. One of the the journals uh, asked me if we had a control for this, and they wanted us to do a, a randomized controlled study. And I, I just don't think that's ethical when you have something that that treats someone ninety five percent of the time, and something else doesn't have any efficacy. It doesn't seem right to randomize folks to that. So we're not going down that road, but we're we're going to have a lot more. Um, careful and robust data. So I think that will help. But I think just uh, going around and, and lecturing on this, I mean, I give talks on this probably two, three times a year uh, at, at certain national forums. And uh, folks are now really starting to talk about it and it's catching on. Uh, making the patients understand that how low m- morbidity this is too is, is really important. You know, we're, we're not even going into their neck that's radiated. We're actually doing a facelift incision using their superficial temporal vessels the ones in front of their ear, so they really don't have a visible external scar. The amount of uh, surgery done in their mouth is is essentially the equivalent of a wisdom tooth extraction, or, or whatever it takes to get the bad bone out. But but the key to this operation is we don't lift uh, any of the lining over the bone where the bone is in good shape. So we leave the periosteum on the bone. We only debride down to healthy stuff, and and so it's just it's as little as we need to do um, to get to get the problem fixed. Almost the equivalent of like. Mose surgery where they, they're they only following, you know, what's bad and not taking any more tissue out. Same with us because you want to preserve all that good tissue. Um, so getting that education out there um, and, and convincing people that this is, a, yes, it's a surgery, but it's not it's not the same operation that was done in the past um, is, is going to be really important.
0: From an awareness standpoint, a podcast might be a good idea.
1: <laughs> That's a great idea. We <laughs> should do that. The other question is, and patient, patients ask me this, is can I get dental implants in this bone? And my answer is, I have no idea. We just don't know yet. We've put uh, an incredibly healthy blood supply on there, and there's there's a lot of studies out there that show when you when you transfer this tissue, it's essentially transferring a vascular pedicle, you know, an artery and veins, you know, flowing into that area. We've just rerouted tremendous blood supply, like a heart bypass on the jaw. So when we do that, what happens to that bone? Will that bone tolerate us putting implants in like normal bone would? I don't know. And so we're going to have to go down there or do some folks that are very motivated and, and see how it goes. And, and all the folks that have two legs, we have another option if something goes wrong. Um, we can always do it again. And some of my patients have have really kind of said, well, it wasn't that bad. I mean, I'd rather try and get dental implants and if you have to salvage it. then I, I accepted a scar on my other thigh that's covered by shorts. So we've got to figure that out. We've also, in patients that are borderline, that don't have the full thickness disease, but I, you know, I want them to have enough that I'm very confident about stability. So that's at least a centimeter on the, the tongue side and the cheek side, the lingual and the buccal cortex of the bone on the mandible. If they don't have that, that height, I'll actually supplement them with a little bit of graft from their hip bone, uh, which is tiny little incision. We put this long-term numbing medicine in. They hardly know that that's even been done, but that's been growing great bone when we put it in there because we're wrapping this kind of like a burrito with this healthy blood supply. And can that bone accept implants in, the, in patients that are motivated to do so, or is the next step, you know, getting scaffolds with our own progenitor bone cells and then wrapping that uh, with this tissue and really building a stable jaw for them? I think there's, you know, the sky's the limit on what we can do when we've got thin vascularized tissue that we can transfer that can, you know, separate spit or snot from everything else and keep it, you know, keep it clean, give it an amazing blood supply, keep it healthy. Uh, and, and I think this is kind of opening new doors in reconstruction that we have to, you know, we have to go down and, and figure out.
0: So, if, if people happen to be listening in and they're thinking about this as a potential option for a patient, um, you've certainly mentioned the quality of the bone, the amount of bone that might be present as a factor in terms of whether someone would be a good candidate. Are there are there other things that would make a, a patient particularly a, a good or bad candidate for this?
1: Well, I mean, if they're if their disease is recognized early they're a good candidate for it almost always. It's very rare that someone presents with full thickness, destruction of the jaw. It's it's usually a story that they've they've been observed for even years and gone through hyperbaric oxygen and IV antibiotics and debris. And that's that's when it's too far gone. So the early candidates are the better candidates. And everyone doesn't look like a nail to us. You know, so if you have very minor disease and we don't think it's big enough that, that it needs this operation. Certainly, we go down the lines of a simple debrisment and, and medical management and see if we can get someone better, but with a very close eye on them. I think anyone that fails aggressive management or hyperbaric oxygen should strongly consider this, because at some point, you're going to go beyond the simple operation. You're going to need the big operation. and Again, the big operation works, but it's an order of magnitude different. And A lot of excellent centers have reported complications with the the big, the fibula operation, the segmental resection that approach 60% in terms of post-op complications. And a lot of that is related to, to get the exposure of the jaw, you're going through a whole lot of very irradiated damaged tissue, and it just can't close and heal. Um, We don't go through any of that. And I think that's the key is we're staying in the mouth and we're tunneling blood vessels in front of the ear.
0: Well, it's uh, some great work you're doing. I appreciate uh, your insights and look forward to, uh, to hearing about even more exciting uh, developments. Thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: To make a direct online referral to our Tossic Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancerpatientreferrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances.